I'm Tanya Barman and I'm from SEMA and I'm delighted that you could make it this evening. Uh, this is an event that we have been sort of focusing on culture and ethics and I guess it's a long-term relationship SEMA have now with St Paul's. It's now into its fifth year, five years is quite long and five years is also the length of time that I've been with SEMA. And so it's easy to do the math on that, 2010, you can always figure that out in fives and tens. Um, and when I also joined, within a few months, Unilever released their first sustainable living plan. And I was new to the world of finance and accounting, I'm not an accountant. So a lot of what Paul Pullman said at the time helped me get a hook on what we should be communicating, what I felt we could be communicating to our audience globally about the long term. And it was pretty much at that time Paul Pullman took the attention away from short-term quarterly reporting and focusing on much wider strategic issues to do with the environment and sustainability, etc. And there was a bit of furore at the time from the city, and his response was, if you buy into this, come invest in us, and if you don't, then don't. And I'm sure if you track Unilever from that time till now, I think they've done okay. With SEMA, we've been looking at issues of managing responsible business for over 10 years now, with a survey that we conduct every three years. And in our most previous survey, released just a couple months ago, we have found that there is a rise in the use of what we call ethical management information. Management information that is not looking at the financials, but at the non-financials, the environmental, the social, the governance issues. And we found that this information, although it's used predominantly by senior management and the board, there's a growing attention to it by investors. And to us, we think this is the key. This is, will be the turning point for companies to not worry about what's going to happen next year, but actually what are the impacts of decisions made today going to have two, three years in the future. And we can see investors here at 30%, the demand's coming from them, so say our members globally. That's even more than regulators, so we can tell that the investors do have a big influence on the actions of companies. And we compare this with the rise in the year-on-year -year growth of the principles of responsible investment, which as of last year had over $45 trillion of assets under their management. Outside you'll see our latest issue of financial management, which for SEMA members should also be getting through their letterboxes, or should have had them by now. And that involves uh, quite a deep, so a deep interview with Dominic Barton of McKinsey, who has spoken about long term for quite, for quite a while now. And it's, you know, he will put out there that the model of capitalism is starting to shift. So that's something we will hopefully discuss tonight. And Charles Tilly, the chief executive, at um, SEMA very much advocates for integrated reporting to look at that financials and the non-financials for the long term and sums it up by saying that integrated reporting tells a business story and is the key to long-term success. Finally, we have a new academic report which I usually do not read. They're very uh, <laughs> technical and often have a lot of uh, financial data in them, which I can't quite get my head around, but I couldn't resist using this image of an accountant in an MRI machine, and this was a number of uh, Slovenian academics who did a study on 32 accountants trying to see the impact of accountability on impacting decision making. 
And from what I could gather from reading from the report was it does have an impact. So if you make your people accountable, it will affect their decision-making and considering the long-term view. So thank you very much for joining us tonight. There will not be a fire alarm, as we know it's scheduled. So if we do hear one, we exit the way that we came in. And on that note, I would like to ask Barbara to come up and to introduce our panellists. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tanya. I'm Barbara Ridpath. I'm director of the St. Paul's Institute. And she's given an introduction on why the subject matters. I'd like to give two brief live examples, which most of you will know. And I'd like to ask one of our audience members to give their thoughts um, on why they're here tonight, which will help begin some interaction among us. I'll then ask the speakers to come up and take a seat as I introduce them. Their biographies are in the program, so I'm not, that way we can focus all our time on the remarks. Now, those of you who listen to the Today Show or watch any news feed today will have noticed that Barclays is close to appointing, subject to regulatory approval, their third CEO in three years. With the ever-decreasing tenure of chief executives, it is difficult to understand how any company or CEO can manage to long-term objectives or stay long enough to cement a culture. And even if you haven't been reading the news, it would be difficult to have missed recent events at Volkswagen, based on a piece of software consciously designed to cheat on diesel emissions testing. Two quotes from VW's 2014 sustainability report bear reading aloud here. For the Volkswagen Group, Sustainability means that we conduct our business activities on a responsible and long-term basis and do not seek short-term success at the expense of others. Elsewhere in the report it says, it is our conviction that sustainable economic success can only be safeguarded by following rules and standards. In our daily business, we advocate honorable and honest behavior that complies with the rules. Hmm, obviously not everybody got the memo. Sadly, what this shows is that conduct, culture, respecting the interests of all stakeholders, and thinking long-term are not issues specific to the financial sector. And it also shows, which we probably will talk about some more, that you need to actually walk the walk and not just talk the talk. So at this point, we're fortunate to have with us Anna Colben of the Financial Reporting Council, who's in the process of trying to put together a study on culture. And so I'm wondering if she would be willing to just stand up for just a second, I think it projects without a mic, and tell us both what you're working on and why you were interested to be here. Hello, thank you, Barbara. Um, as Barbara said, I'm from the Financial Policy Council. Um, I'm here tonight because I'm working on an initiative that the AFLC launched this year around um, what we're trying to do is to look at and understand and develop the role of boards in shaping and influencing corporate culture um, and to identify what we would like to choose to identify and share best practice um, what's going on in companies uh, in this country already around culture, how boards are tackling it, um, how effective they are at uh, influencing it and to share that by developing some more practical market-led how-to type resources that boards can use to support their uh, own uh, discussions around corporate culture going forward. Um, the, the idea is, with this piece of work that 
and one of which is that every every company should be led by an effective board that's collectively responsible for the long-term success of the company. And the words that jump out at me, certainly in that principle, is the term long-term. Um, and that's really one of the central ideas around this uh, project. It's, it is that the sustainability of, of success in a company um, is linked, um, inextricably linked really, to the culture um, in that company. Um, and that the, the different parts of the organization, um, whether it's HR um, and your reward and your incentivization, your recruitment policies, or whether it's your relationships with your suppliers, or your relationships with your customers, and how you're treating all the different stakeholders, that if you are not building sustainable relationships in those areas, um, then possibly you will have a problem with, in the long term um, with, the, with success and with the shareholder value that you're delivering. So, um, that's, that's what we're working on at the FRC. We're working closely with um, some partners, including CIMA, um, the CIPD, and the Institute of Business, Ethic, Business Ethics, and the Institute of Internal Auditors, and a number of others, to take this forward. Um, we, you know, this is, <coughs> culture is, is not really anybody's territory, and there's a lot going on out there, and we recognize that. We want to get the benefit of pulling a lot of that together in a way that's going to be helpful for boards in the future. Um, so what we're hoping for tonight is, is to get some input to that project through the debate, through listening to the panel members, um, particularly um, around the role of boards, around the relationships between uh, the chairman and the board and the CEO, and what, what should the board be doing in this area. Um, and, and those are the sorts of issues that, that we're looking at and that we hope Hope to get some input on. Thank you. Thanks, Anna. Uh, now, if I could ask the panelists to take their seats where they're marked. The first speaker is going to be Anders Bouvin, UK Chief Executive of Handelsbanken. Then we'll have J Jane Fuller, co-director of the Centre for the Study of Financial Innovation, and Edward Houghton, Research Advisor for Human Capital and Metrics at the CIPD. And I think you should all admire Edward because he very bravely is standing in for a colleague and didn't know he was going to be doing this until this morning. So I think we all need to cut Edward a break. <laughs> I will be moderator and timekeeper. We're going to limit each of the speakers to 10 minutes so that we have the maximum time for discussion. Your role as the audience is to make this event as interactive as possible. So I'd like to encourage you to formulate questions and challenges that matter most to you based on what you hear from these speakers. And our first speaker will be Anders, who will speak on the organizational and management model Handelsbank has adopted and its results. Anders, over to you. Thank you, Barbara. And thank you all for coming to this very special but wonderful place. At least it's very unique and special for me. Um, I'd like to start by asking you all a question, and don't worry, it's not a trick question, it's not very difficult at all, to be honest. Wouldn't it be preferable to have long-term sustainability in the performance of a business rather than self-inflicted volatility? I said it was a simple question, and I think we all would nod, uh, saying, yeah, that sounds correct, especially if 
that stability, by having that stability, you outperform your competitors. In Handelsbanken, we radically changed our business model in 1970 in order to achieve more sustainable outcomes. We replaced the many goals that we had at that time, if I can get this to work now, with one simple, single corporate goal, and that was to, as you can see, attain a higher return on equity and higher profitability than the average of our competitors. And still keeping things simple, we identified two means to achieve this goal. And those are to have more satisfied customers than our peers, and secondly, to run the bank more efficiently at lower cost than our competitors. And I'm glad to say that for 43 years now, we have had commercial outperformance in this area. And, may I add, customer satisfaction is and has constantly been higher than our competitors since independent uh, surveys have been made. And our cost-income ratio, a good measure of uh, efficiency, has been amongst the lowest of all European banks now for many decades. Customer satisfaction, as I say, is at the core here. And um, um, I think that this model that I've described has proven its worth particularly in periods of economic crisis, like the one we are hopefully emerging from right now. Um, and where Handelsbanken has gone uh, through these difficult periods of time, and there have been a number in the last 45 years, unscathed, without any need for any kind of support whatsoever, neither from shareholders nor, nor from taxpayers. Instead, we've been able to, during these periods of time, been able to grow and widen the profitability gap. So to say a few words about the model, I think it's important to start by saying that the model is based on a fundamental humanistic outlook, and that is that it is human nature to want to do well. So if you encourage local decision-making, you will be rewarded with wiser decisions than if they were taken in a remote head office. Besides, as you can see, Customers prefer this. They prefer local decision-making. It increases their satisfaction, and as I've said before, that leads to long-term commercial success. Exactly what we did in the early 70s was to devolve decision-making to our branches. We flattened the pyramid, if you like, squeezing out many layers of middle management. This is how we describe our organization. We describe it as an arrow which focuses on the customer. It's not a traditional hierarchical organization, as you can see. So by doing this, needless to say, we also achieved reducing our costs heavily by um, reducing middle management and getting um, rid of layers of such. To be able to devolve power in this way, we needed to ensure that everyone in the organization focused on good customer outcomes long-term relationships, and sensible decisions. In order to achieve this, we needed to remove steering mechanisms in the organizations that worked in the opposite direction. For instance, central product targets and central volume targets. That also included bonuses. Short-term incentives, in our opinion at least, are not compatible with running a customer-focused, sustainable banking business. 
In fact, we abandoned fixed planning altogether. We haven't done a budget in Handelsbanken for over 40 years. So what do we have instead? Well, we have a model that's based on two things. The first thing is a shared set of values. For instance, and as, I've had, as I have mentioned, customer focus and being thrifty and having good cost control. Emphasizing the importance on taking a long-term view and being a responsible and integrated member of the local communities we serve. Secondly, we introduce some core central policies. Since we are a bank, obviously the credit policy is a such example, but also our personnel policy. So you can say that our staff in Handelsbanken are then allowed to and expected to navigate freely within the framework that these two elements constitute. And this um, enables us to adapt very quickly to unforeseen and maybe even unforeseeable events, which has over the decades proven to be very useful, since we are no better than anyone else in guessing the future. So in our view, it's much better to know where you are today than trying to guess where you want to be tomorrow and instead having an adaptable and agile organization to meet challenges as well as opportunities when and where they occur. <coughs> Head office's role, you remember the arrow, that's the farthest back in the arrow, is to support staff and ensure that the values and principles are clearly understood and followed, but otherwise to get out of the way of the branches. Devolving power and avoiding central uh, interference has another important advantage. It creates a strong sales sense of staff ownership and engagement. As you have seen, this represents, I would say, a huge natural advantage in achieving good outcomes for cost customers, but also for shareholders over the long term. This slide, as you can see, shows the development of shares since beginning of or the middle of 2007 up to roughly today uh, amongst European banks. This sense of ownership is further cemented by our profit sharing scheme in Handelsbanken. Uh, we call it Octagonen. And briefly um, described, if we achieve our corporate goal, a part, a portion of the profit that takes us above the average return on equity compared to our competitors is then divided uh, amongst the staff who work during that year. And everyone gets the same nominal amount. It doesn't matter what your role has been in the Handelsbanken system, the amount you get is the same. This money is then invested into a staff foundation, which predominantly to 95% invests in Handelsbanken shares, and you're not eligible to take any withdrawals from this foundation until you are 60 years old. Uh, or older, but at least 60 years old. So as you can see, this um, uh, profit-sharing scheme steers strongly towards our core values of good customer focus, um, strong, con uh, strong control on, on costs, um, being prudent, working in the long term, long, in lo in long term and um, avoiding unnecessary risks. And it also aligns um, shareholders' interests with the staff's interests. So, ladies and gentlemen, being a responsible member of the communities we serve is key for our commercial success. And therefore, we were very pleased this year to be awarded the Financial Times ArcelorMittal Bolus and Business 
award for corporate responsibility. Especially, I think some eyebrows were raised when this particular prize in this day and age was awarded to a bank. So, to round off, so I'm well within my 10 minutes, um, I just want to show you this quote behind us, which is taken from our internal staff booklet that every Handelsbank employee gets a personal copy of when they join the bank. Uh, and it really, the booklet describes this value-based management model. And this quote, of course, just underlines the long-term outlook that is so embedded into this business model. Thank you very much. You can, leave, you can leave that up, actually. That was a, um, thank you very much, Anders, for giving us such a splendid example of capitalism working well. Um, Short-termism is now familiar as a derogatory term aimed at company managements, investors, and all the people who ply their trade in between. It covers a multitude of perceived sins, from over-trading to over-emphasis on quarterly earnings. I'm not very keen on this blame game. And so my, my aim over the next 10 minutes is first to point out that various post-crisis reforms have tackled at least some of these problems, and second, and more importantly, to argue that the complex relationship between companies and investors deserves to be better understood. The financial crisis did indeed demonstrate that a combination of cash bonuses and crude sales targets can be a recipe for mis-selling misbehaviour and misuse of shareholders' funds. Investment bankers tend to take the rap here, but don't forget that the biggest mis-selling scandal, uh, costing about £27 billion, was that of payment protection insurance, and that happened in retail lending. Th these sales initially resulted in incredibly, besides the word incredibly, high returns on equity of more than 80%. So staff were rewarded for selling more and more, including to people who couldn't claim. On the investment banking side, we now have a notable scalp in Tom Hayes, who was sent down for 14 years for his part in the LIBOR rigging scandal. In the late 2000s, he was bringing in so much revenue that Citi poached him for U from UBS, but then sacked him after discovering the nefarious way he was achieving it. These are cases of perverse incentives and pressure to meet targets. The gains were short, certainly short-term and have since been reversed at great cost to banks' reputations. But this is simply no way to run any business in any sector at any time. Reforms since then have focused on deferring bonuses, paying part of them in shares and allowing for clawback. At least in retail banking, performance assessments now take account of customer satisfaction and, sust and also sustainable profits. In the long term, it doesn't pay, as Anders has described, to rip off your customers and to be clear, bank shareholders suffered from the short-term gains that turned out to be non-gains as well as bank clients. A related accusation under the short-termist banner is that there is just too much trading going on, that it's a zero-sum game uh, between high-frequency traders. And Michael Lewis's book, Flash Boys, paints a wonderfully unflattering picture of this. This is short-term behaviour. But what are the genuine problems? 
If it's hyperactivity that makes no money, then those providing the funds and the commissions should withdraw them. Full transparency on trading costs should provide the disinfectant here. If the only way to make money is by deploying large sums and taking high, high risks, then capital requirements should be ratcheted up, and this is exactly what the Basel III rules have done. If the activity looks like a hedge fund using the bank's capital, then force a spin-off, and that's what the Volcker rule has done. But the real point of tonight's debate is to move further out on the investment chain and to think about the companies that use our savings as capital and the fund managers who allocate capital on our behalf. On the corporate side, concern has been growing about a lack of investment, and this has been linked to a perceived overemphasis on quarterly earnings announcements. But the obvious reason for companies to be nervous about investing since the crisis and the subsequent recession is that they've lacked faith that demand is picking up. Without that factor, expansion of capacity would be unwise. Remember that in sectors with rising demand and prices, for instance in commodities during the long boom in Chinese industrial um, investment, there is no shortage of investment. Indeed, those sectors are now dealing with the effects of overcapacity and are cutting back capital spending from very high levels. Now think about more modern sectors such as technology, from IT to biotech. Investment is not so much in property and plant and equipment, but in people. Accounting is much better at handling capital spending on the former than on intangible assets such as intellectual property. Investors do realise this and attach much higher market values to these modern companies than their balance sheet values would suggest. They also attach much higher price-earnings ratio to growth, to growth companies than the average for the market. And actually, they really don't mind if these companies don't pay out much in, by way of dividends. They prefer surpluses to be reinvested. Looking at businesses more broadly, it did make sense after the crisis to focus on strengthening balance sheets, containing costs and rebuilding profit margins. For companies with spare cash, but no profitable investment opportunities, it also made sense to increase dividends and buy back shares. Many companies have reached the end of that rebuilding process. There is only so much that can be done to improve profit margins and earnings per share before attention has to be given to the top line to increasing sales and capacity. The evidence on capital spending plans has been much more positive in the past couple of years, although some nervousness has understandably returned in the past quarter. And don't forget that the overall data on capital spending has faced strong headwinds because of the cutbacks by oil and gas companies and by miners. Turning to the investment industry, first there's a myth to destroy. The reduction in average holding periods of shares to as little as seven months by some calculations is clearly skewed by the increased trading activity I referred to earlier. By definition, buy and hold investors largely sit on the sidelines in this game. Indeed, the rise of passive investing using index tracking funds is an antidote to trading for its own sake. 
When the Investment Management Association, now the IA, looked into this a few years ago, it found that average holding periods for the bulk of institutional investors varied from about two and a half years to four years, with no discernible downward trend. As for financial analysts, and I'm a fellow of CFA UK, there is some misunderstanding. In a recent survey that we did, 55% of respondents said they had an investment horizon of three years or more. Regular results updates are important for touching the tiller on forecasts of future cash flows and for building confidence in the direction of travel. This does not mean, however, that meeting a quarterly EPS target is the be-all and end-all. Rather than indulging in a blame game about pressure from the market, companies should do a better job of explaining their long-term investment plans and they should not assume that investors have a short-term bias. If you think about passive investment, index tracking funds are actually locked into company ownership. They do not express their opinions simply by buying or selling the shares, let alone shorting them. The only signals they can give are through dialogue with company boards, and the increased focus on stewardship, including the FRC's code, is testament to this. There is an issue with the amount of time fund managers can, can devote to engagement when they have small stakes in a multitude of companies. The art lives, lies in being selective. And after all, most management teams are quite happy to be left alone to get on with the job. A final set of questions revolves around the way fund manager performance is measured and the length of their mandates. Why pay attention to quarterly performance when the beneficiary's investment horizon is longer term, in a pension fund, for instance? Good question, but believe me, and I've sat on investment committees, it is difficult to tell whether a short spell of underperformance is just noise or the start of a trend that one should be bothered about. What would help here is more focus on what long-term savers actually want from investing in companies. Primarily, it is gains in absolute returns that beat all the safer options over the long term. And that is exactly what equities have done. This means that those managing long-term savings should be less worried about both their relative performance and their quarterly performance. And this argues for a loosening of benchmark constraints and for longer-term ma mandates. And there's some signs of this happening. The trouble is that volatility makes us savers nervous, and this causes too much attention to be paid to short-term price changes. More courage is needed in explaining to savers the case for patience. And this is a particular challenge as auto-enrolment brings millions more workers into long-term savings funds. In the end, both investors and companies are in the business of creating wealth. This happens in the context of an uncertain future and the imperfections of human nature. It is easy to bandy about criticism of short-termist behaviour. It's much harder to understand and explain the factors that really matter.
I'd really like to say thank you for the opportunity to speak to, to the group today in this amazing setting. Um, it's, it's fantastic for us as the CIPD to be sharing our thoughts on this topic that's incredibly important to us and our HR members and to the wider business community. And I'd like to provide a bit of a, an alternative take to this idea of long-termism and short-termism um, from the perspective of the individual so that the person who works in the organisation, who makes the decisions on behalf of the business, and who at the end of the day gives 70% of their working life in an organisation working hard to create value for themselves and for the business. And to me, that's, a, that's an interesting perspective to take on this debate, which can uh, overtake the way that we think about organisations today and think about finance within the economy. So one of the big challenges that we face as the HR profession is demonstrating how we as HR professionals enable organisations to create value over the long term. And this idea of value creation for HR professionals is very difficult because we think about the asset of the human, of the individual, and we think about the way that we can use our HR processes to mobilise individuals to create and add value over the long term. But then we also think about who those people are in those jobs. And if we consider who Generation Y, Generation X and Millennials are, they're individuals who are increasingly thinking in the short term, using technology which allows them to access information quickly and rapidly, and they're moving career very rapidly and, and changing their careers in ways that, that 50, 25 years ago hadn't been seen. So we are now noticing within the job market and with the labour economy, labor economy and labour market, this change in the way that people are approaching work and thinking more short term in the way that they think and develop their career. We now have this idea of tours of duty within, their prof within professions, where individuals move between tours of duty, between jobs, between careers, and develop themselves in ways which 25, 50 years ago we weren't experiencing. So the idea of the short-termism, long-termism lens goes down to the individual quite well, I think. So for us, thinking about how we enable HR professionals to deliver on value creation in both short-term and long-term environments means that we have to think about the capability of individuals, employees, to develop, develop and deliver on their work within those two timeframes. The challenge that we have there is around technology and individuals and how they work with technology. So short-termism, we think about the rapid access of information to be able to work with um, and use information. Um, we're moving further away from actually being able to think for ourselves, to make decisions for ourselves, to be able to um, engage with our various communities internal to the business and external. We now think about algorithms to make decisions for ourselves. These things are rapidly changing the place of work and how individuals work in work. And automation in particular is a fantastic challenge to us in the way that we structure work for the future because automation is providing us with both a way to enable greater value creation through human capital investment. We can move away from um, particular roles which don't enable us to create value over the long term. We can actually consider and think. But it also means that we're moving ourselves away from doing the practical skills and capabilities that we have developed in ourselves over the long term. So there's a new way of working that we need to think about within the future that is also around this idea of short-termism and long-termism. So do we think about the long-term view as professionals in business? And this is something that we've considered at the CIPD quite hard in some of the research that we've recently conducted. So within the profession, we have this idea of developing standards and principles to enable uh, HR managers and line, line managers to make decisions over the short-term and long-term. So these principles, essentially for HR, um, to develop this, what we call the profession for the future, 
uh, essentially are there to develop and guide HR professionals into working within organisations in the future. So these principles, if I can give you an idea of what they are, they're the idea of, for example, a, a principle around fairness. So operating fairly, which if you look into um, the literature, is to provide value um, without, without causing the most harm to the person who will um, be harmed the most by the process. So it's ensuring that the process creates value for all, essentially. There's also the principle um, of uh, merit. So at the moment, most organisations within, um, within the Western economies in particular um, do performance management based on merit, based on performance. That is the way that we reward individuals through their performance, not by the way that they act in delivering that performance, but, um, but traditionally we've, we've rewarded around merit. So merit is probably one of the most important principles that has been applied by organisations today in the way that they manage their people. Now, when we think about sustainability and long-termism, the principle that applies there is the idea of handing down. So handing down within our communities, handing down to our children, handing down to our families, handing down in work. And when we think about handing down in organisations, it starts to get very tricky because as individuals, we are not hardwired to, to hand down. And to illustrate this point, we um, recently conducted a survey of over 10,000 individuals, a very large sample, across the UK, US, Middle East and Asia. And within that survey, we were asking questions around particular um, activities that HR professionals do. And we provided them with scenarios about how they would deal with certain situations. And within those scenarios, what we did is we tested how they applied certain principles. One of the principles that we applied, one of the principles that we suggest, suggested and tested, was this idea of handing down. And it's, it's fascinating when we, when we look at the numbers themselves. So if we um, consider the opportunity that HR professionals have to hand down, 24% of HR practitioners, 24% of business leaders, and 22% of line managers always applied the principle in the scenario when they were tested. However, when you consider whether that scenario can be overcome, whether it can be compromised in any way to make a decision, 50% across all of them, around 50 to 54% in each of those segments, was happy to compromise the handing down principle. So when push comes to shove in organisations, line managers and HR managers compromise that one the first. Handing down is the first to go. What's the least to go? Merit. So in decision making, we reward people on performance on how they add value. We don't reward people on the way that they hand down. So when we consider um, handing down as an organisational level view, when we think about the experience of organisations in handing down, over the past two years, um, we can say that organisations oh, organizations who have um, experienced growth over the last two years are more likely to hand down. If you're in a, per a particular economic circumstance as a business, you're less likely. So small organisations, rapidly growing, we would expect them not to be thinking in the long term. It's very healthy to think in the short term. You have to get through the next day, the next week, the next month. Once you're in an organisation which is established, when your finances are happy, when your people are happy and when you're operating well, then you'll start to be able to, to, to hand down and think about the future. So depending on your situation, depending on your circumstance, short-termism and long-termism can look very different. So what this means when we think about the organisation and how people are managed in the organisation, we have to consider um, leadership, the way that we structure our organisations, the way that we plan our workforces, the way that we mobilise and deploy our human capital. When we think about CEOs and their role in organisations today, 
Unfortunately, the average CEO tenure tends to be around four to five years within the FTSE 100. So to be able to make an impact on the long-term strategy of your business, to be able to withstand the, the challenges that your organization is facing over that time, we believe that tenure is too short. And at the top table of organizations today, we don't have the view of handing down ingrained in our leaders. When you think about that from the perspective of different types of organizations, it starts to get interesting. So those organizations who are bound around family values, so family-owned businesses, small organizations, within those organizations, um, one of the things that we're testing with future research is the idea of handing down sustainability thinking more long-term in those organizations because the culture of those businesses and the way those businesses are operating and managed provides the environment to hand down and to be more sustainable. So thinking about the types of organizations we create for the future and the type of organizational structures we develop and the leaders that we develop into those businesses, it is possible to create environments for long-termism and short-termism to work together. And they can work together according to where you are in your business cycle and according to your business model. But it's important for us to consider that they have value according to the context which they're operating in. So I'd just like to, to finish on the idea of how we as a CIPD fit into this programme of thinking around short-termism and long-termism. I would say that maybe 10, 15 years ago, this debate was not something which we were engaging or actively engaging our HR professional colleagues around. It's an idea that we were very interested in sharing, but the HR professional capability or view of where they sat in the organisation didn't allow them to think about this idea of how they add value and at which um, time horizon they add value over. But just today, being at this particular event and talking to you and working with SEMA, I started to illustrate that actually there's a real opportunity if we are to create value over the long term for individuals, for the well-being of employees, as well as our various external stakeholders to organisations, we have to understand the balance between short-termism and long-termism. And there's no quick fix that's going to make every single stakeholder to the firm happy. And the number one thing to remember is employees are a stakeholder to the organisation. Thank you very much. Well, I have to say, Edward, for, for picking that up this morning, you did a pretty masterful job. So thank you very much. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask the panel a couple of questions, um, which is the prerogative of the moderator. And then I'm going to open it up to the floor. But I think even with the questions that I'm starting with, if there are people in the audience who have a view and would like to add something to that discussion, you shouldn't feel you're prohibited from doing so. And I'm. I'm going to start with something that Edward mentioned that was on my mind as well, which is both the tenure of the CEO in companies and what you call tours of duty among the staff. And you know, we could have a long debate about whether the culture of hire and fire created the mentality of tours of duties or whether modern mm -hmm. technology created the sense of tours of duty. But it's pretty clear that employees are less loyal than they used to be and some employers are less loyal. We don't, you know, I yeah. won't speak for all of them, but, but I, I have children who are in that generation and they do think very much in terms of this tour of duty concept and what they're going to get as a skill set in their next job and where they're going to get trained to move up. And so if you've got the employees or the young, at least the younger employees thinking that way, and at the top you've got turnover of senior management at a pretty rapid rate, how does a company even begin to embed a culture in an organization 
that, that remains and that stays through that turnover. So that, that's the first part. And then I guess, not particularly for Jane, but, but, but yes in a way, because how then can an outside investor gauge that culture? And what do we use to judge that from? And how do we, how do we know that a blip is a blip and not a trend um, when we see changes in performance metrics? So how do you actually measure that? Would anyone like to start? If I, if I may. Um, mm -hmm. So on the idea of tour of duty, I think it's a byproduct of the knowledge economy, essentially. Mm -hmm. I think if you provide the, if you empower individuals to understand the value that they have to a business, so for example, if you upskill your, your workforce to be able to make these decisions, to be autonomous, to work in the type of job they've always wanted to work in, a byproduct of that is that they have empowerment to make decisions about where they decide to align themselves and to hold their career. And so I think it's something that will only change and increase over time. I think organisations have to build the right type of roles that enable people to, to come in and do these tours of duty. And we need to recognise in the way that we structure jobs that this is a fact of life now for many um, individuals in that they want to do tours of duty, they want an experience that's beyond an individual career, they want to actually think about expanding themselves you know, outside of the, what we would term as a traditional career 25, 50 years ago. And if we want to be able to create value over the long term with these individuals, it means that we have to enable them to make those choices. Just on tenure, um, even if chief executive tenure were seven, eight years instead of four or five. The fact is that sustainable organisations obviously last much longer than that. So actually culture is what matters. So I'm from the Financial Times. It dates back to the 1800s. There's been a huge turnover of staff since then, obviously. Um, but I don't think the culture will have changed that much. So I think that culture is the, is the glue there. The other thing is about chief executive tenure. Sometimes you want a certain type of chief executive to come in... Um, to sort out a flabby organisation or to solve a problem or to you know, realise that some sacred cow has to be killed. Um, and sometimes you want someone with the vision thing who's going to lead the investment and do the expansion. And actually that's a perfectly, you know, that may be two different people. It's a very rare chief executive actually who's good at both. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I don't get too hung up about that. On how you judge culture from the outside, in a way that's... Partly the same answer, you know. Is, does it seem to be the same company, or are the good things about the company, say John Lewis, the same? If I meet a chief executive today compared with a different chief executive I might have met last mm. decade, and the answer is yes, in a good organisation, and I'm sure that's that's true of Handelsbank. And, um, the other thing is, is it um, in terms of the culture, is it succeeding? I mean, there's there's good profits which build company customer loyalty, which was very well described, and there's bad products profits which might have a little work in the short term through ripping people off, but if they don't come back, that doesn't work. So actually, the performance, the results do, do give me some impression of whether or not you know, profits have been sustainable, whether the business model yeah. makes sense and whether it's you know, customer-focused or, or not. Because I have a, a slightly ulterior motive because there's talk of a different kind of MI needed. You know, management information or a different kind of even financial reporting that's needed to measure some of these things. And, and I'm not sure that's true, but I'd like your view. Well, I've got a short answer on that. It, it isn't. We've got plenty of information that's both non-financial and non-financial. It's up to us 
as investors and our representatives to use it properly. Mm. And <coughs> Can I just come with a comment regarding the, the, um, the churn of CEOs and its probable possible impact? I mean, as I explained, we've, we've, we've uh, stuck to the same model now for 45 years, and I think that's pretty unique. And during that period of time, we've had at least four or five CEOs. So, I mean, in our world, the CEO is the, the kind of the, the gatekeeper for the, the, the culture and the values of the bank. Sure, things happen over time. You know, um, internet, uh, you know, uh, introduction to banking was something that had to be dealt with in the 90s. So things like that happen. But that doesn't necessarily mean you have to introduce radical change. And I think that is something that you see all too often in an organization. In comes a new CEO, all of a sudden new goals are set, new targets, the organization needs to be adjusted to achieve those, and the staff are far behind, and the customers really you know, don't understand what's going on. Mm. So I think you can have stability in organization, even though you, 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 you obviously need to change CEOs every now and then, if you have this common platform that you know, the organization has bought into and the shareholders have bought into. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe I'm watching this, you can probably tell by my accent I wasn't originally born here, and one of the things I watched happen over the course of my career as an analyst is that different countries used to behave quite differently in their investment behavior and in their performance behavior and their long-term approach. Uh, particularly some of the continental European countries had a much more long-term approach to reporting and investment. And then we saw whether it was the benchmarks of the investors and the famous MSCI index or, whether, or other performance indexes, or it was peer group analysis by many analysts that, that some would argue not just the short-term results, um, but being measured against their peers suddenly put them in a different light. Your measurement against your peers is very positive, <laughs> um, but it can equally well go the other way for some. And I'm, and I'm wondering whether that peer group analysis has something to do with the fact that there's a, a comfort in moving with the herd for many companies in an industry. Well, if I can say something, if, if, you, if you move with the herd, you're not going to be better than your peers. So I think, you know, if anything, it could be the opposite. I mean. We, we believe in relative goals because, as I said, we, we absolutely don't believe in, 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 uh, in fixed planning and guessing the future. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and if we achieve a, a return on equity of 18% in a year's time, that could actually be worse than achieving 12%. Because I'd much rather achieve 12% if the industry has 10% rather than 18% if the industry has 20%. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think that having relative goals in business is good because it's all about, you know, doing better than your competitors. Mm. If you all the time do better than your competitors, in the long run, you will be rewarded by, uh, by the, uh, the stock market or, or the value of your company. Mm. Just say, I, I wouldn't like us to um, encourage the idea that somehow European capitalism is nicer than American capitalism. Um, it isn't, and it, it's not more successful either. So, um, you know, what's... And actually, VW is very interesting. You could say v, you know, the car industry is to Germany what the finance industry was to the UK in the financial crisis. And it's, uh, you know, for all the uh, admiration of German corporate culture, uh, well, it didn't work there, did it? So a couple could, Swiss chemical spills we could discuss yeah. as well. So, so you, know, you, get, you, get, you get good and bad in different cultures. Yeah. 
But he, but it was traditionally quite a different approach, and and I certainly saw it when I was an international analyst because the return on investment, the time horizon for return on investment on the different companies was distinctly different, and I don't know if that's I mean that was more from the inside than the outside. I don't know if that's still true. Um, and I think the investor bases for global companies are much more similar than they used to be. Yeah. I, I'd also add that I don't think we have enough visibility on the, the human capital asset of the firm. I think in the way that we currently communicate that in our, in our annual reports and our strategic reports, and in some sense our corporate social responsibility reports, um, I don't think the standards that we apply to the measures that we use are to the right level. I think we need to be very clear about the importance of some of those measures. And you know, we think about those, those significant challenges that these organizations have faced. They've been around behavioral issues of individuals, individuals acting out of their, out of their role and in being put in situations where they have not understood the way that they should be acting. Um, and all of these things I think we can measure and we can demonstrate and we can report on, which I think investors would probably value very much. Um, but the way that we currently report on them, and we've done research on this with um, uh, with an investor community group, with pensions investors, about the quality of reporting that they perceive in annual reports. And they've come back to us saying that the quality is, is too low for them. And our hypothesis for that is the way that we train investors doesn't allow them to see some of this data, to understand why some of this data around be behaviours of individuals and human capital value is important. So there's a, there's a bit of an education piece, I think, that we have to do if we want to think about some of these concepts with these different stakeholder groups like investors, because at the moment their training, from their perspective, hasn't provided them with the skills to understand the value of human capital in firms. Do you think companies would be willing to report some of that? No, I mean, the good ones would. No, I, I think it, you know, it, it's their competitive advantage, isn't it? That's, that's the challenge we hear from business, is that it's their competitive advantage they're communicating with. So, so why would they share that they have significant issues around their leadership capability? That's the challenge that we hear. But actually, if you're an investor, that's exactly what you want to hear. Jane, would it make a difference in the way you thought about the place? Um, I think that we can see... Um, the value of intellectual capital. I mean, as I said earlier, um, if you think about IT companies or pharmaceutical companies, pharmaceuticals is a good thing. I mean, you see their drugs pipeline and you read hundreds, you know, thousands of words about their research programs. Um, they're not, if they then went on to say, oh, you know, and our people are all very dedicated or they're all trained up to a certain level. Does that add much to me actually just seeing how much they're investing in this, how important it is, and how well they're, how closely they're monitoring it? I have quite a lot of evidence already, I think. Now, I know there was a question over there, so maybe this is a good time for me to stand up so I can see other people who want to speak as well, and I'll go back to the, the podium to do this. Fiona? Um, my question really is, um, I'm chaplain to the business There is not a conflict between creating wealth for shareholders 
and having a good business model that delivers sustainable profits. You know, if I, you know, I am a pensioner, you know, with a pension fund, you know, why would I want a company to destroy value by doing something? In, and in terms of banks, it's a very interesting question, that's the, which is, and the answer's not going to be right on. The return on equity metric led to some bad behaviour, including actually making the equity so small it couldn't absorb the losses. Well, there's been quite a lot done to make the to, to tackle that, but we're still, and there is an accept, acceptance that the targets will need to be lower than, you know, so the high teens is 10% all right. Um, but I share some of your concerns. If they focus on one target and motivate people in a big way in terms of bonuses just to go for that target, um, it, there will be bad behaviour. So they need to think much more about what's our business model, are we pleasing our customers, um, are we you know, generating more profits, significantly more than our costs, and then the share price will look after itself. Can I just... Can I just um, sorry, just comment briefly on that um, you know you might not be seeing such um, you know initiatives or hearing about such desires but I don't think necessarily you should interpret that as people don't want to I think in many uh, cases it's they don't know how to how to break loose from the chains of you know short-termisms you know managing you know, um, the, you know, the boom and bust, the in and out, the peaks and troughs, this, this uh, you know, uh, uh, inevitable, you know, cycle. And I think a lot of people find it really, really hard, you know, how, how do you break loose from that? So I wouldn't necessarily interpret it as that there isn't such an interest. I think it's people just don't know how. There is a comment here. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, just talking about uh, new cultures, and I, I agree with the lady behind me, are we sure that those new cultures are going to be sustainable? I'm just going to mention three companies, Sports Direct, Amazon, and Facebook. You can't get more new than that. Um, uh, Amazon, we've all heard, have poorly they treat their employees. Uh, Sports Direct, the worst um, abuse of employees I've heard. Of. Sometimes of customers as well, just as customers. <laughs> 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 Culture does sit in, I think, silos in various stakeholder pots. Yeah. You know, Amazon is a tech darling, but you know, we've seen how they treat them, we've seen all the undercover uh, programs about that. The latest I heard from Sports Direct was the staff are so terrified of calling in sick that one lady had her baby in the toilet. So, you know, these are reputational issues, but you know what? They're doing well, you know, Amazon doesn't make a profit, you know, they're going to have a world in the future. So, how do you align all these things? So this this is really interesting to me because this this is if you if you're happy making your your external stakeholders of the firm happy if that's your drive as an organisation that's your business model it doesn't matter about how you treat your employees but then when you think about the, the tour of duty concept there are certain employees within that that environment which will thrive on those challenging environments. And that's what Amazon will say to you if you challenge them. We're creating the environment that, that creates innovation. We're creating the environment that drives performance for these individuals. And if they burn out, we'll just get another set because that's the way that the knowledge economy is working. And so we have to make a decision or we need to think about when we, we develop our organizations and our HR processes, whether this is how we align our HR process with the business model. And if it is, then it's fine. 
So it's, it's an interesting concept that, that Amazon is trying here, but I think it, 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 will, it, will, it will come back and bite them if they don't do it correctly. I've done a lot of research on this. I, I, I train all these directors. I'm a fellow of these um, well, they're running a tremendous risk. You know, I, I do take account of the fact that if a company abuses its employees, pollutes the environment and pisses off its customers, it is not going to make money for me long term. And particularly in the Twitter world, the, you know, the things you've described, they just go around like wildfire. This is terrible for companies' reputations, and that they're, they're taking the sorts of risks that would, you know, put me off. You did mention that Amazon's not profitable, by the way, and Sports Direct. Well, it has a patchy record, so let's see. I can't remember what the third one was. Oh, Facebook. Facebook. Um, I'm just interested in the human capital element with Facebook. Uh, apparently, they have an automated system to deal with all of their complaints. There isn't even a person at the end. They do <laughs> one billion transactions of complaints and just send automated letters, which I think is incredible. It's the algorithm that will take over yes, all of us, you know? Yeah. Put us all out of it. There's a coming here and then there's one in the back. Um, we, when I started work, you know, 25, 30 years ago, um, we had personnel departments, and that talked, implied that employees were people. We now talk about human capital and human resources. And so people have become a, a disposable commodity. Um, which surely does feed back into the loop that yes, you are going to have a tour of duty mentality if you think your managers think of you like they think of their oil, their coal, their machinery, which has a limited shelf life and can be disposed. And the other point, which is, um, we've talked a lot about investors, and I am one, but we, a lot of investors' herd mentality is determined by the intermediaries who are between them and the clients wealth managers and consultants, and consultants may do a great job advising pension funds on liabilities, but as a fund manager, my experience has been that if you stick to your guns and underperform for a couple of quarters, they will be leaping and, and wringing their hands, and wealth managers tend to go for people who perform quarter by quarter. So you put that with an environment where companies think of their employees as a resource rather than this is a person who I have a duty towards who will add value because they are a human being, <laughs> not a machine. Yeah. Um, can I interrupt because I'm desperate to ask Anders what they call the, what you call your department that takes care of your staff. What are they? What's the the name of that? Department? They can call themselves whatever they like. I don't really <laughs> think it's terribly important. But um, you know, I, I'm listening to, to this discussion here, and you know, it's um, it's um, pretty scary. And and and, uh, and uh, I agree with you. It's it's uh, in the long run. You know, I, c I can't foresee that you can uh, at least if you're in the service industry. You know, where you where you, you face customers. I mean, your, your staff is absolutely key. You remember I referred to this little booklet you get uh, when you join the bank. It says clearly in this booklet, it's called Our Way, that in Handelsbank we strive to employ the best possible people at as young age as possible and keep them until they retire. So that's a big statement. In order to live up to that, of course, you've got to fill those 40 years 
with, with you know, challenges and, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. So the whole concept of, 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 of you know, burning your stuff and seeing them as, as uh, you know, as, um, as fuel, you know, to me is absolutely absurd. And I cannot believe, at least in the service industry, that that's a very good long-term strategy. I feel really privileged because I didn't work very many companies, but I changed jobs every three years within those companies because they were taking care of me as well as me doing work for them. And if that mentality has changed broadly, that's, that's really quite terrifying. And what do you want to say? Yeah, just two points on, on the, the idea of the asset. Um, one is we recognize this as, as a professional body, which is why we're developing these principles. Um, if you think about us as an organization, as a profession, we've been around for you know, 100 odd years. So, so we're still maturing as a profession. So that, that to us means that we have to ensure that we have the right principles moving forward that enable us to make these decisions in the right way, that are business compatible, that do add business value. Um, and the second point is, I like to think about human capital for, in, in individual terms. So like, I like to think every day when I go to work, my human capital, I sell to the work that I do. I, I, you know, I sell to my workplace, and I decide which parts of my, myself I give to that job. And I think if we can empower individuals to think about themselves as individuals with skills and capabilities that they sell and they acquire, it provides, it empowers individuals to make the right decisions on how they develop their, their skills and capabilities and where they choose to distribute it. So I think it's, a, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting concept on an organisational level, but if we drill it down to the individual, I think it can be quite empowering to think of yourself as having value and providing value to a business. There's a comment in the back. Yeah. <coughs> great ideas, great panel. Great discussion. I like the question about the capital, the human capital. The, the question is, if you have such a great model like Hansibar, uh, how can we shift that proposal onto the British side? And we have one similar company, uh, that is um, John Lewis, which is 150 years old. What uh, is the, the commonality between Hansibar and John Lewis? It's a long-termist policy. But all the rest is different because you are a shareholder of the company, John Lewis is a partnership. And I think partially the answer why we are battling with the shareholder, uh, with the short terms, is that the company, the family-run companies, essentially have disappeared. In the 50s, 60s, we still have a vast majority of the companies that are uh, looking long-term. At the moment, we have only very few companies, like Scott Butler is another one that doesn't. So the question is, how do you turn the tide? And I think the answer to that is in the, not in the boardroom, but at the AGM meetings. Because this is where the institutional shareholders can form the company policy and can insist on the board and the chief executives to turn the way how they govern the company. Unfortunately, what has been the case right now is that it's the chief executive and the board that owns the company rather than the shareholders. At least that's how they behave. In my view, the shareholders need the ammunition with which they can fight the board. And obviously there is a shareholder acting. But I think about the data or the information that they are not supplied by the board. For instance, they don't have strong arguments why long-term is better than the short-term And one of the, the key issues here is that we have some long-term measure indices, for instance, like the Irish and so on, but they are only <coughs> soft industries. They are not really touching the, the core of how the company developed. So what we need, for instance, uh, there are many more things like that, but we need new measures 
uh, that will convince the shareholders uh, that long term is, is, um, is better than the short term. And these measures have to be based on non-financial uh, criteria rather than non uh, rather than financial. And unfortunately, we don't have it yet. Okay, can I break that into two bits, which is the information you would look for that isn't currently provided, but also how effective AGMs are at actually changing the behavior of companies? Um, the, it, it's, it's just not true that investors don't value long-term growth. Uh, growth companies, including ones with um, very little sales and no profits, you can think about Facebook when it came to market. Uh, are extremely highly valued. Investors are crying out for growth stories, and if managements explain themselves well, as for example Rolls-Royce has done over the years, uh, although it's had some local difficulty lately, um, then they, investors listen and, uh, and they will hear it. And you don't need, this is, in terms, you need some, fin of course you need some financial numbers. It, what, if the companies have a convincing investment plan, they have to forecast that it will turn, you know, when it will turn into cash flows and how those will grow. I mean, you can't just say, um, I think it would be nice if this product worked, and so just trust me. You know, you do need, you need a plan, which of course you verbalize, it's not all numbers, but you also have to have uh, cash flow forecast. Um, and the other thing, you know, the idea that there's only two nice long-term companies in the UK, the, the branches of Handels Bank and John Lewis, I'm, I'm sorry, it's just not true. In every sector you have, in every sector you have good and bad companies, and the ones that have the better growth prospects have the, the higher PE ratio and don't have to, and often don't pay out much by way of dividend. It, um, yes, um, first of all, no, we're not a partnership, but the biggest owner of the bank is the staff in Handelsbank, about 10%. Um, I think well, there was quite a lot of comments, and you mentioned quite a few things, but just on the topic about, you know, how, how do you go about changing, and, you know, is the AGM, or, or, you know, what do you do, I think... I think um, the, you know, the, it could very well be that the board, through the shareholders, um, you know, draws the conclusion that you know, the, the development of the value of the company, the share price, has been so mediocre for such a long time, we need to do something and then find a CEO who can, uh, who can in, their, in their view, um, do something about it. But it, it, it really, I think, has to be then driven by the CEO, because after all, it's he or she who, um, who, who has to, um, to you know, do this in practice. So I think what you need to have is, is, is a very um, convincing, visionary type of leader who can um, convince um, the board and the shareholders at the AGM about you know, um, a, a, a radical revamped model. And of course, ask them for some patience because you cannot you know, um, do something radical in three months or six months. You know, it takes longer. 
So therefore, you need to have this visionary leadership who can convince the shareholders by saying, wait a while, it might for a couple of years or whatever, you know, you might not get the re returns you desire, but once we've launched this, you know, you will get higher returns than the average. So I think really it's the CEO has a key role here, even though it might be initiated by the board. Well, I, th it, I think engage engagement is important, and as I said, it's, this, it's surprising how many institutional investors are actually locked into ownership at the moment, so they aren't adopting the sort of quietly sell and go away tactic. Um, I think, Anders has described it, if, if the managements are prepared to tell their story and explain why they want to invest in something or change something, but it will need some patience for that to work, investors will listen. Um, so I think that, so the first thing is that um, the, not just the fund managers, but perhaps the, the pension fund trustees, you know, let's get a, you, you made a good point. I think the investment chain needs to be a bit shorter because if you think about the end beneficiary in a long-term, in a pension fund, you know, a long-term savings fund, um, they, what would they want the fund manager to do? It would be to listen to the story about growth or change that was going to be positive. Um, so, but there's limited resources for that, so it's going to be selective. But actually, it, the management will be should be just getting on with the job. You know, they don't. Fund managers are fund managers because they may not necessarily they're not entrepreneurs and they're not you know managers of an engineering company or a pharmaceutical company. So, you know, we. Um, I think it's, what's very important is that the companies don't assume that the investors aren't interested and are short-termist. So at least you don't have the inhibition, and then when investors engage, they, need, they do need to listen and make it clear that they can be patient. There's, a, there's another aspect, and it was raised in a different context, but if you think about the impact of social media, you know, it is actually much... You know, there are jokes about how the only way you can get customer support from almost anybody these days is to put a comment on Twitter, because otherwise they don't reply. But it is true about shareholder engagement and shareholder activism, too, is that you know, when, when something happens at a company that causes a hit to their reputation, you know, they often react fastest because of what's going around the Twitter sphere. Um, and I'm thinking of Rana Plaza here just because it's something we've done some work on and the way Primark responded to that and way other companies responded because they realized that was going to hit their franchise really hard and really fast. And so interestingly, there are new ways, I think, of expressing views that didn't even exist. And also I see it as a director as investor, you know, companies are increasingly putting all their presentations out on their websites and they're webcasting almost all their analyst calls. So really, if you want to hear what's going on, it's certainly a lot easier than in the day you had to do it all by, you know, post and actually, you know. And you can ask questions and contribute in a lot of them as well. And they let, I mean, the US ones are particularly good at this. Europe is coming along fast where you don't even have to be a shareholder. You just have to register for the call. 
um, and you can listen in to the analyst calls. And so I think the, the prospect for that kind of shareholder democracy is actually improving as opposed to deteriorating, but it does mean people actually have to pay attention. They have to do some homework. I'd add as well, for your group, is just go onto Glassdoor. Just go onto Glassdoor and look at your investments and see how employees are talking about some of these businesses. That will give you a good sense of the culture of those organisations, direct from the, I'm not going to call the employees horses, but direct from the horse's mouth. Um, Do you want to tell them what Glassdoor is? So, sorry, if, so, sorry, if you're not from, from this world of employee engagement and HR, Glassdoor is essentially like the trip advisor for work. So employees go on to Glassdoor and they provide testimonials of how they feel their recruitment process was, how they feel they were engaged at work, how they were treated, what type of work they did. And essentially, it's, 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 it's transformational for the way that employees are viewed in organisations and how they represent themselves. So I'd really recommend if you've not been on it, I don't, I don't get any money from Glassdoor, but I would suggest, <laughs> I would suggest that you go and check it out because it's, it's really very, it's a very interesting way that social media or, um, or the use of social data is, is changing the way that people are viewing work and where they choose to be employed. And not to mention, before you take a job offer anyway. <laughs> Anybody else like to make a comment before we wrap up or ask a question? There's one back there. Um, much of the discussion this evening has been about PLC companies and shareholders, etc. on that side of things. A lot of what's been discussed um, could certainly uh, be applied to um, uh, our own businesses or non PLCs. I don't know if you could maybe give a bit more discussion about where they should be focused on um, that side of things. That was, so I've got two questions. Um, that was my first question. The second question is going back to uh, something you alluded to earlier in terms of we've been discussing about the long-term culture here, certainly in terms of uh, being stable and sustainable. But how do you ensure really in terms of having that uh, three to four turnover in terms of looking at the focus and making sure the business is still focused and still adapts and stays competitive against its competitors? Thank you. Alex Ferguson's famously quoted it, publicising his new book at the moment about regenerating the company or turning on that side of the How do you ensure that that continues as well? Simple question. For me, or <laughs> I'll start with the last one, since I remember that one. No, well, the first one, obviously, I think the smaller companies, often, I think, in many cases, you know, uh, especially family-owned, obviously, are you know are are managed with the long-term view. I mean, m many companies, obviously, family companies with the generation, you know, it's personal generation. So I think uh, the problem really lies in the larger companies. But definitely, I think it's got it's you know the 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 principles at least that I've been talking about are very much applicable for any type of customer uh, company, to be honest, on any size. And then the uh, your second question. Um, I think that, yes, um, Sir Alex is probably right because he, he, uh, he won the league a couple of times, so I suppose you can't say anything else. And, um, and, uh, and I think um, the, 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 what I'm at least talking about is um, kind of having in an organization a, cu a couple of, you know, very basic, if you like, um, principles, you know, um, you know, which, which, you know, uh, do not go out of fashion. I think that's really key. 
um, um, which are not dependent on where you are in the cycle. Uh, I've yet never yet met anyone who, who said, well, you know, having satisfied customers is, is, is not good for your business. I mean, that's an example of one. I've never heard anyone that say, well, actually, it's, it's, it's good long-term to be prudent and, and uh, you know, not spend your money left and right. So I think the trick is having a couple of, you know, um, of those very basic, fundamental, almost common sense principles. And then, just like I tried to say before, you know, the daily operations of a company, you know, things happen. Like I used the, inter the introduction of the internet and the internet banking in, in the 90s, you know. So, you know, then, of course, you need to, you need to react and, 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 um, and make decisions then and there, just like Sir Alex probably alluded to, um, you know. But to make this new um, emergence of whatever it is, or this new possibility, this new threat, how does it fit in? To your 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 basic set of values, etc. You know, how do we, you know, work with this new phenomenon without um, without diluting or renouncing the the core values? That becomes the challenge uh, instead. So it's not, you know, you know, not changing at all. It's 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 changing within the framework and adapting to circumstances within the the core principles. I think is the key. Conventional answer for a while was it's all tone at the top, and they'd set a good example, and somehow that filters down. I think there's much more focus now on action in the middle and and getting things right the way down. Um, it's very difficult in large organisations, and uh, perceptions die hard. So the top might say, um, "We we want you, we put customer satisfaction first. Um, we want you to treat the customers well. That might mean saying that you're not selling them something and telling them no, they can't have this, you know, or whatever. But actually, it takes quite a long time for the staff to accept that. Uh, to, to, to stop thinking, well, what they really want is just for me to sell more of it. So you've got to really, really plug a, plug a, away at that, and it's it's and presumably it's 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 at the top, but you've got to get every single manager and every team member right the way down, and obviously um, we've had a very good description of, of how to do that. Um, the other thing is you have to be very careful about the business model, and in, in banking there's quite a lot of sort of cross-subsidy and cross-selling, and you have to be quite careful that if somebody comes into you looking for a loan, and it's at a period when it's very competitive, and so you know you're going to be lending on rather a a squeezed margin to them, that you don't think, oh, but the way to really make this customer profitable is to stuff them with something else that they didn't actually ask for when they came in. So I think it's very important that you just focus on, let's give them what they want, let's think of it more as a service, more of a service culture, and not, you know, and get away from this focusing on selling stuff, including stuff that actually may come back to bite you if there's fines or compensation later. 
Now, um, what we tend to do in this group, before we invite you uh, to drinks, is to ask you what you think your next step is going to be, but either within your company or as an individual, that you would be doing to try and change culture where you are or sustain culture where you are. One of the reasons we do this is often you don't know each other all that well, and it at least gives you a chat-up line over a drink to have something to say to your neighbor who you might not otherwise have something to say to. And often we find, better still, it leaves you feeling somewhat empowered to go out and do something the next day to actually make a difference, which is why we're all here. So before we open the doors and invite you to a drink, would you please join me in thanking the panel? I think we've done a masterful job in covering all aspects of this issue.